welcome everybody um, to tonight's uh, event at the Forum for European Philosophy and the London School of Economics. Um, my name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and I'm a Fellow here at the Philosophy Department. Um, and today we have one of our events in a fairly new event strand called Consilience that some of you might be familiar with, but we only started this last year. And the idea of this event strand is that we try to bring speakers together from different disciplines, try to identify common questions that these speakers from the different disciplines might have, integrate knowledge from these areas that aren't usually brought together in the same department or in the same research community, and thus sort of enrich the dialogue on these points a little bit. Um, and we have tonight, I think, a really interesting topic, namely um, social cognition, the fabric of our social work, it's a top of our social world. It's a topic that I'm personally quite interested in. I'm personally doing some research on the relationship between self-consciousness and social cognition. Um, and all of our three guests tonight also have um, distinct research interests in this area. And um, I'll just briefly introduce them. Some of you might be familiar with our speakers anyway. So the first speaker tonight will be Chris Frith. And um, he used to be a professor of psychology at the Wellcome Center for Neuroimaging here at UCL. Um, he is now developing what he calls the new discipline of neuro-hermeneutics. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. I'm German native speaker, so... Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like German. Make it sound German, it sounds better, yeah. Sounds German, sounds better. Okay, um, and uh, this discipline, according to him, concerns the neural basis of our social interaction. So he will try to inform us a bit about the neural basis of how it is that we are able to understand other people, that we can share representations about the world amongst each other, and that we can cooperate. Um, then the second speaker will be Demo Moran, who is um, a professor of philosophy at the University College in Dublin. And he has published widely on medieval philosophy and contemporary European philosophy, especially phenomenology. He has recently completed a research project on the phenomenology of consciousness and subjectivity, and has done some really interesting work on intersubjectivity and empathy. So he will try to bring the perspective of philosophy to this topic. And then our third speaker will be, or I think actually you will be second in line, right? But that on my handout here. Um, second speaker, Alex Gilspie, who is a senior lecturer in, the lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Stirling. And he's uh, very interested in communication, especially in relation to the coordination of joint activities. So he's interested in our ability to coordinate our actions and also in what happens uh, when that is not successful. So he thinks that actually many of our big contemporary problems are essentially problems of social coordination or the lack thereof. So he will bring that very interesting perspective to the debate. And so um, without taking much more time away from our speakers, I'll just hand over to Chris. The way we will proceed is that each of the speakers will give a very brief, about 10 minute presentation uh, on their perspective on the topic. Then we'll have a brief discussion among the panel and then we'll open it up to questions and uh, contributions from you. If you have um, questions of clarification, really urgent questions, after the presentation you can ask those, but we will have the integrated discussion after everybody has presented their views first. Thank you. Right, I'm, <coughs> I'm going to talk about the social brain, and I'm particularly going to talk about 
what we have learned about social interactions from studying the brain and from behavioural experiments. And because I know that brain images are very misleading, I'm not going to show you any. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you about them. And the first point I want to make is that we now know, we probably knew it before, but neuroscientists now know that we are much more embedded in the social world than we realized. And indeed, I think one of the major contributions of neuroimaging is to show how much social processing goes on without awareness. Because when you, the advantage of imaging is that you can find out that the brain is actually responding to some stimulus or to some response without needing to ask the person to do anything or to report what they're feeling. And in particular, we unconsciously mirror the sensations, actions, and emotions of others. So for example, if you see someone's face being touched, the area in your brain that responds to touch will actually become active. And you can demonstrate this in the scanner by putting someone in the scanner, touching their face, <coughs> which bit of the brain lights up having them watch somebody else's face being touched and showing us exactly the same bit of the brain lights up. And it depends, of course, on which side of the face you touch, whether you touch face or the neck. And interestingly, the reason we did this experiment was because of the existence of rare people who have synesthesia, in which they say, when I see someone being touched, I feel it on my own body. And we thought, this is very interesting. We should put them in the scanner and see what happens. But the result I'm describing to you happened in the control group who do not report feeling themselves being touched when they see somebody's face being touched. The synesthetes, this activity seems to become more, if it's more active and it spills over into consciousness, but this seems to be a, a general phenomena. Now we also, we all know that actions are contagious. There's something called the chameleon effect, which is where if you have two people sitting next to each other talking to each other, they will start imitating each other's non-verbal gestures like crossing their arms or crossing their legs or whatever it may be. And again, you can see similar things happening in the scanner. This happens also with facial expressions. When you see an expression of fear or happiness or anger, you will be automatically imitating it and you can demonstrate that by measuring activity in the muscles of, your, of the observer's face because the same muscles become active in the observer's face as in the face of the person whose expression they are looking at. And again, this seems to happen without awareness. So you will get this imitation of the facial expression even when the expression is presented, the face you're observing, the expression is so brief that you're not, able, not aware of it and not able to identify which expression it was. And also, which I, we, share the pain of others, sometimes called empathy. Again, if you put someone in the scanner, you measure what lights up when they have a painful stimulus. Similar area lights up when they see somebody else or they know somebody else is having a painful stimulus. So one question you could ask is, what is the value of all this mirroring? Why is it an advantage to unconsciously mirror the sensations, feelings, actions, etc., of other people? And I think there are at least three levels in which it's valuable. First of all, it's valuable in the sense of for self-interest. So when you see an expression of fear, 
and you imitate it. You're actually widening your eyes, you're flaring your nostrils. You're actually in a better position to take in stimuli in the outside world about what the fearful stimulus is. So seeing, imitating expression of fear readies you to, to run away or whatever is necessary for the fearful object that is presumably present. And similarly, the expression of disgust, you actually close everything down to prevent these nasty things coming into your nose or whatever it may be. So that's purely self-interest. But another interesting thing is that contagious effects, particularly of action, have relevance at the level of the group. So I mentioned the chameleon effect, where you automatically imitate the person you're talking to. You can then, I mean, if you're a psychologist, you, the, the next thing to do is to deliberately imitate people without them noticing and see what happens, not without telling them. And if you are imitated, you think the person you're talking to is more friendly, you have more rapport with them. But even more interesting, you'll give more money to charity afterwards, even though it's nothing to do with the person who's been imitated. <laughs> so just the mere fact of being imitated makes you behave in a more pro-social manner. And the last thing which I haven't talked about yet is we automatically track the knowledge of others. So for example, if, you're in, if, if you see somebody in a room, a typical psychological experiment, there's a room with dots on the wall. You can see that there's a dot on that wall and a dot on that wall, but the person is in the room is looking that way, so they can only see one dot. Simply asking someone the question, how many dots can you see? They are slower if there's somebody in the room who can see a different number of dots for themselves. So you automatically take account that other people have different knowledge. Now, this, of course, is extremely useful for predicting what people are going to do, because what people do depends on what they know. And if they know different things from you, they're going to do slightly different things. And you might, for example, need to tell them what they don't know. Or if you want to deceive them, you don't tell them what they don't know. And this becomes very interesting. This is, I think, moving towards the explicit end of it and this idea of neural hermeneutics, which I don't really like to talk about. Um, when, as soon as you reach this point, I am, because I know about your emotions, your, I mean, I'm conscious to know about your emotions, your sensations, and so on, and maybe I consciously know about what you know and what you don't know. And I, for that reason, I can predict what you're going to do. But the trouble with people is that you will be doing the same to me. So when I'm trying to predict what you're going to do, you're trying to predict what I'm going to do. And then you have to go up a level, because I have to think about not just, I don't just have to think about what you are going to do, I have to think about what you think I'm going to do. <laughs> and you can get into a very long recursion in this way, which is always exciting. But I can give you an example of an experiment on this sort of thing, which is the so-called beauty contest game, invented by John Maynard Keynes, because it's really all about stocks and shares. So the game is, you have to think of a number between one and a hundred. And the winner is the person whose answer is nearest to half of the average number. Okay. So then how do you, what's the way to deal with this problem? Well, you can, one way is you can think about other people. You say, if people are really stupid and they ask to think of a number between 1 and 100, they'll say 50. In which case, I should say 25. But of course, people are not really stupid. They will think 50. They will also think that. So they will say 25, so I should say 12 and a half. And if you're a super rational Nash type person who believes everybody else is super rational, you finish up by giving a very low number indeed, and you lose because most people are not super rational. And if you want to know the answer, it's roughly 12 and a half. 
Um, because it's been used in a Danish newspaper. <coughs> and people have scanned this task, and interestingly, the more deep you go into the recursion, the more a particular area of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, lights up, which from other experiments we know is particularly interested in thinking about what other people are thinking, and maybe thinking about what other people are thinking about you. Now, in competitive games like the one I've described to you, it's obviously success is marked by winning, and the best person wins. But in collaboration, you can do better than that. Because in collaboration, success occurs when two people can do better than the best one on their own. And that is the thing that we have most recently been studying to see whether it's really true that two heads are better than one. And this was done by a, a standard psychologist's very boring signal detection task. There's a very weak signal which is present in one of, or one of two intervals. Um, instead of one person looking at the screen, we had two people looking at it together. And then they each had to say which interval they thought the signal was in. And if they disagreed, they then had a discussion between themselves and came up with a joint answer. And what we could show very clearly was that the sensitivity of the pair working together was significantly better than the best member of the pair working on his own. So they could actually achieve success by this collaborative means and of course the question you would, and we could also show that it critically depended on the discussion. So you then ask what the discussion, what did they actually say to each other? And this is very interesting because basically the way this works, the reason that you can do better with two than you can with one, is because in a boring task like this, every now and then your tension will flag and you'll miss the stimulus. This is very unlikely to happen in both people simultaneously, so as long as you can tell the other person this was a bad trial, you can capitalize on this. So it depends on the two people telling each other how confident they were in the signal and choosing the person who was most confident, the answer of the person who was most confident. And this, of course, means that you have to be able to introspect on your experience to discover how confident you are. And you have to be able to report this to the other person. And you have to come up with an aligned measure of confidence so that when I say I'm very confident, it's not the same as when you say I'm slightly confident. So all these things have to happen. And we could see this happening in their conversations. They would develop, they would tend to imitate each other's expressions, and people who did well in terms of group advantage were those who most quickly finished up with a unique set of phrases describing different levels of confidence. Interestingly, they did not go for things like one, two, three, four, five. They used linguistic phrases, and they were on the whole different for every pair to some extent. So these explicit aspects of social interaction depend on the ability to represent mental states, our own as well as others, in a manner that enables us to discuss them with others. As I already mentioned, we know some of the brain regions involved in this, like the medial prefrontal cortex, but I have to say we have absolutely no idea how the brain does it, and that's our aim for the next few years to come up with a computational model. But I think this ability to share with each other these experiences and to develop ways of talking about them is the basis of things like culture. Thank you very much. Okay, is there um, an urgent question of clarification, something you haven't understood in the talk that you need to follow up on now? If not, we will move on to the second presentation.
Then we'll move on to the second presentation. Again, we'll come to a discussion of all of this um, after the three speakers have presented. So, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this uh, discussion on the fabric of our social world, a topic which I think we're already discovering drives at the heart of our uh, psychological being, and I'd like to add, drives at the heart of our social being, our collective being, society. And we're going to cut today, I think, from the minutiae of experience up to the big levels of society. I'm also very honoured to be discussing this with uh, two such respected academics. Uh, you might have noticed I am not as distinguished. <laughs> um, but uh, th th this creates a, <laughs> a, a slight asymmetry in the conversation, because while I've read both of their work, actually, oh, I don't know how much they know about my work. So I'm going to uh, present uh, for 10 minutes or so a little bit about uh, my work, which is, in short, uh, oh, following up the work of George Herbert Mead. George Herbert Mead is a social psychologist, and I'm going to present to you a social psychological take which possibly controversially, I will say, cannot be reduced to either cognitive science or hermeneutics. It is a distinct contribution. So let's see where we go. The problem for George Herbert Mead, <coughs> for psychology and society, is perspective taking. And by perspective taking, we can mean quite broadly a number of the things Chris has referred to here, mirror neurons mirroring each other, empathy, intersubjectivity. It goes by lots of different words in different traditions. And although we need to be precise about what these different words mean, there's also a sort of general big problem. How is it we're connected? Connected not just uh, on a sort of one-to-one -one basis, but I'm taking your perspective now as I speak. I'm orient orienting to you as an audience, and you are taking my perspective insofar as you understand what I'm saying. This is happening all the time, and how is it occurring? The question I am going to tackle, or try to tackle, or at least throw out an idea for discussion, is how this develops. I think Chris has, has shown it's a reality at a neuropsychological level, but how does it develop, and what are its consequences? I'm really going to focus on the developed part, but I can talk about other parts. So the problem, schematically. Self and other, and we think of them as separate in space we think of individuals as bounded and isolated from one another. And this then introduces the problem, because we have the mind of the other over here, and so that, that cluster of experience, and we want that to get into self. So you have this sort of classic mind-reading problem. How do you read the mind of another? Well... There's many approaches to this. Uh, I think the problem was possibly first identified in phenomenology by Descartes, uh, Husserl, and so on. They, when studying their own phenomenological experience, realized that uh, that was good, but um, other people are a real part of our experience, and how, how do we connect with other people? And Levinas and Merleau-Ponty made contributions there, which perhaps Dermot will talk about. Cognitive neuroscience, I think massive contribution here, mirror neurons and so on, which Chris has mentioned. Phenomenologically, we knew intersubjectivity exists. The neuroscientists had to find it because it's an everyday reality. Now they have, and we now, now have the problem of how it comes about. There's two popular theories. One, there's an innate mechanism. We imitate each other. And there is evidence for this. It's somewhat controversial, some debate, but by and large, babies imitate adults. 
I would question whether an innate mechanism is sufficient to go from babies imitating, you know, tongue protrusion to Shakespeare inside his own mind cultivating the characters of Othello and so on. That rich internal world of multiple perspectives and characters. How do we go all the way to the heights of human culture with imitation? Another one is um, social interaction. A number of social psychologists and social developmental psychologists say something happens in interaction. The two people interacting are mirroring emotions back to each other, um, Fonagy and so on. They also in London have done work on that. Uh, there isn't enough mirroring going on, I think, to reach the heights of what we, we have to deal with. So I'm going to present another, and it probably runs in parallel with these other mechanisms. Uh, it's called position exchange. It's, it's from George Herbert Mead. He didn't use this phrase, position exchange. Uh, I, along with some colleagues, have, have coined this phrase in order to try and articulate what we're talking about. And Mead is a social psychologist in that a lot of his work is based on a basic insight. The perspective you have, your phenomenological experience, your cognitive orientation in the world, isn't given just by you, your brain, your being. It's constructed in part by the situation you're in. Social psychology shows us that situations shape how you think. Now, with that one insight, you can begin to bridge a build, build a bridge between us. Because if I've been in your situation, then I have the experiential basis for understanding you. And this is what characterizes human society. Human society is made up of differentiated situations in which you experience different things. And we move between these situations or social positions. I now am lecturing, speaking, talking. You have all probably had some experience like this. I equally have been in the audience and seen people talk. We've exchanged positions. And this repeated exchange of positions, Mead argues, what he called the social act, is a basis for weaving the fabric of intersubjectivity or weaving our shared world. And the uh, case he picked out to illustrate this is children's games. And I'll give you an example. So if we go back to the self and other separate in space, what do we add to this? We realize that self and other aren't floating in space. They're embedded in institutional structures. One such institution, lecturing, listening, that's one. Another one in a game like hide and seek is the rules of the game, the rules of hider and the rules of seeker. Now, if we have two children here, to be a good hider, what does it mean? It means taking the perspective of the seeker. So you look, maybe I'm going to hide under the table. Ah, but if I were seeking, I would hide under the table. So I'm going to. And you get into what Chris was talking about, this recursive perspectivity. But remember, when self is in the hider position, their experience is determined by that goal orientation of trying to hide. And when they're in the seeker position, they have a different situation, seeking, looking. And that structures their experience in a different way. Now, we add time and some special PowerPoint effects if they work. Uh, and what happens in children's games, which is the defining of human games, is they keep first you hide, then you seek, then you hide, then you seek. Children don't play these games and take one fixed role. In non human societies, insect societies, for example, you have fixed determined roles. Biologically, you are a worker ant, you are a warrior ant, you are a queen ant, by biology. In humans, it's the plasticity of our learning which enables us to occupy multiple roles and integrate them. So, self-other and you get the kind of thing. Now, if we expand this idea of the game 
into society. We think of society as, you know, the listener and speaker have already given that example, friend, enemy, employer, employee, local migrant, seller, buyer. And what happens as we move through? Hmm? Yeah. <coughs> PowerPoint 2010. <laughs> <laughs> so we move through society. You know, even today, I've moved from being local to being a migrant. I live up in Glasgow. I'm now in London. And I've been listening to some people and, list and speaker as well. I've been buying stuff. I haven't been selling anything today. But I had some chat with some people, um, my research assistants, and you know, had a sort of relationship there. And I also dealt with some work emails. So I've been employer and employee. In one day, we're moving through multiple positions. And this, then, means that within the self, that's beautiful, <laughs> um, you get a, a sort of mirror ref reflection of society within the self. So an individual self becomes a reflection of society and is able to orient to. So when I speak to you, I address you as an audience. I am, in a sense, addressing that part of myself, which is the audience in me. And when you listen, you listen on your terms, but you project into me your experience as, uh, of listening. So, how am I doing now? Whoops, whoops, whoops. Now, a quick experiment. Two, three minutes? Yeah. Okay. One empirical test to illustrate this basic idea. We wanted, again, a task with two different social positions. And we went for navigating a map task. Now, one person has a map and is directing the other person. Uh, director and follower. And we had three conditions. When doing the map task, either they were fixed position, the director directed and directed and directed, and the follower just kept following. Or we had cognitive perspective taking, where in between each trial, they would both take some time to try and imagine what it is the other person was thinking and feeling. And then we had a position exchange condition, where the director directed the first trial, then swapped and became the follower for the second trial, and then back to become the director in the third trial. Now, it goes like this. Two maps. Director, follower. Director is given a route and has to verbally communicate that to the follower. So come down from A and take the first turn on the right. And they're all sort of, a bit like Chris said, actually, they have to develop a language. You know, They have to decide, is it like driving a car, or do you hold the map steady? And you get all interesting, coordinative conversation going on here. And people are very good. The follower would do that. Another one, <coughs> and we go on, trial one, trial two, trial three, trial four. In trial five, we give them this route. And they think, yeah, this is pretty easy. They're solving this in one minute or so. And they begin. But this road is missing on the follower's map. And they assume it's correct. So they just keep going, and they end up getting lost. And then they start arguing. <laughs> and we did this with married couples. <laughs> um, you know, and so you get to, the worst is when the men were directors and the women followers. I remember one quote was like, you know, Mary, you've always been terrible with maps. Just shut up and listen. <laughs> you know, it's a real conflict, and, and the task is designed to make conflict, but solution of the task entails perspective taking. So, what happened in the three conditions? Fixed position. 19 out of 20 dyads failed to resolve the task and realized the maps were different. Cognitive perspective taking. Five out of the 20 dyads managed to solve the task. And in the position exchange condition, 17 out of 20 realized the map was different, indicating a massive ability to orient to each other's point of view. So 
Let me conclude then. Um, there is, to what I'm saying, the sort of social psychological point of view I'm trying to bring here is that we aren't just brains floating in the ether. We are embedded in institutions, practices which are shared, and they are bridges between our experience. When I am in a situation, it determines how I think, and if you were in the same situation as me, you would probably think in a similar way. And fortuitously, you probably have been in a similar situation, for example, giving a lecture. And that is the bridge which helps uh, cross the boundary between us. This is not to go against the biological basis of any of this, anything which Chris has said I would agree with. Um, in fact, neurological plasticity is central to this model because you're, you're not biologically determined to be a speaker or a listener. You know, we, we are uh, flexible in taking up these different roles and being determined in different ways. The consequences of perspective taking uh, from a median point of view are twofold. Not only does it give empathy with the other, but it gives something even more important. In empathizing with the other, you distantiate from yourself. You step outside yourself. You see yourself from the outside. And this, at a psychological level, uh, me, then I would argue, is the basis of self-regulation. It's the basis of acting upon yourself. Um, or, or possibly we might get into phenomenology, the, the uh, stepping outside your own experience and observing it is an act of distanciation. So uh, perspective taking, moving out to the other, is also stepping out of yourself, very important. So what I've tried to say then, sticking with our metaphor of weaving the fabric of the social world, this moving between positions is the, is the weaving in our institutional world. Okay, thank you. Good, then we'll move on to our third speaker. And I'm going to even try a slideshow, which is very dangerous in the company of the, the real experts. <laughs> <coughs> As a philosopher, um, there's a temptation. I mean, we talked about which uh, to go first or last, because I could sort of set up the problem, and then they'd show me everything with you know how to specify it in testable conditions and so on. Um, it's nice to be able to sum up. There's a great temptation to comment on what the others are saying, but I'll just go ahead and say what I was going to talk about. Um, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the phenomenological approach and say what that does. I mean, first of all, phenomenologically speaking, we don't know we have brains. And, um, you know, looking at brain images, I know uh, Chris is very sophisticated, uh, uh, but it would be like, you know, trying to compare meals by looking at scans of, uh, you know, teeth moving while eating those meals or something like that. There's a sense that we're missing the experiential uh, domain and not catching it. So uh, we're, in this case, we're talking about uh, empathy or our experience of relating to other people and we're trying to describe it as it's experienced. Uh, this is what Sartre says about the founder of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl. He has restored to things their horror and their charm. He has restored to us the world of artists and prophets, frightening, hostile, dangerous, with its havens of mercy and love. <clears throat> That's what uh, Sartre was said about the value of phenomenology. And the reason is that phenomenology, in a way, tells a story, and it reacts to what it takes to be 
the bifurcation that took place in modern science between the measurable properties and the experienced properties, the so-called primary and secondary properties, happened already with Galileo and Descartes. And the secondary properties, the ones, the experiential ones, were somehow said to be subjective. And the other ones were said to be objective. And that subjective-objective divide uh, really continues uh, today in, in all the sciences. So uh, the phenomenology is really a protest against that by saying that that artificial split had a methodological function but doesn't represent experience as we have it. So what phenomenology tries to contribute is not a causal explanation but description and very careful description. You know, the difference between being mildly amused and very, you know, uh, uh, titillated or, you know, being, between being doubtful and querulous. These are all things that in language make, there's fine distinctions, but in our experience there are fine distinctions. So really needing to recognize, uh, discriminate all the different levels of our experience. Just to give you one example, uh, there's a lot of discrimination in Shaler, for example, who wrote about uh, empathy between what he called contagion, emotional contagion, which is like one baby setting off another baby crying, and genuine empathy, where we are sort of you know cognitively appreciating the uh, emotional and mental state of the other person. So that you know we need to make discriminations and recognize the complexity of our not just our own perspectives but our perspectives towards others. I'll say a little bit more about that. The normal contrast is between the first person, uh, the one we experience, and the third person, the kind of objective view on it. But increasingly important is what you might call the second person, and that is how I relate to another, <coughs> uh, another human being with an experience like mine, or another animal. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's rather broad like that. And one of the points about empathy is that it extends not just to the human domain, but also to the animal, and indeed possibly to plants and other, to our relationship to plants and other living things. Um, so I just mentioned there already mimicry, uh, empathy, emotional contagion, and also imaginatively representing others. That's not exactly empathy, but it is another way. I mean, putting oneself in the shoes of another uh, uh, is something that we can do as an imaginative version. You uh, mentioned in Shakespeare and creating characters, for example. Uh, one of the other things that phenomenology stresses is this background of the life world. I don't know if can see the bottom of my slide here. Um, which is that there is a thick, uh, I think it's what you were describing as the social world, really. There's a, there's a thick layering of, if you like, horizons to our experience that are presumed. And it's one of the points made in a lot of the phenomenological criticisms of, of the earlier AI research programs, for example, that they, that they didn't realize the sort of background context uh, that had to be filled in in order to make sense of lots of actions. And that that intersubjective life world is a sort of presupposition of all our experience. Uh, now I'm just going to give you sort of some flavor of what, how phenomenology talks. Th this may or may not be uh, accurate, but it's interesting that Merleau-Ponty, one of the French phenomenologists of great distinction, talked about my experiencing of other people and uh, he bases that on my own ability to touch one hand with the other. So there's already a sense of toucher and being touched within the one person, but I have, if you like, both perspectives within myself at the same time. 
I am both touching and being touched at the same time. So without going outside myself, there's already a kind of internal uh, uh, splitting or duality. And then he, he makes this uh, already the basis of what happens when I shake another person's hand. Uh, and what he says here at the bottom, I think, is one of the key points in phenomenology of empathy. It is imperative to recognize that we have here neither comparison nor analogy nor projection nor introjection. Um, uh, that is that there's a lot of, uh, there are two basic accounts really of uh, floating around in the literature about how we figure out what's going on with others. And one of them is the so-called theory theory. In other words, that I have a kind of map, an internal map of where all the bits in my mind are. You know, I'm thinking this, therefore I'm believing something else, and I'm doing that on the basis of something else that's called evidence. And, and you know, I have an emotional map that's roughly the same as your emotional map, and so on. That's one way of doing it. That, that kind of involves projecting uh, a kind of folk psychology into the other person. Um, and the other way is mimicry or imitation. Uh, and both of them have, have their flaws, if you like, because in one case I don't, I'm not conscious of anyway, doing a lot of reasoning or inference in theorizing about the other's experiences. And, and often mimicry is a slightly different thing. Again, I'll just give you an example in Shaler, who says, look, you know, we don't have to kind of infer uh, uh, emotional state when we see a face. We actually, you know, we live within the experience of it. And actually Wittgenstein says something very similar. We do not see facial contortions and make inference from them, like a doctor framing a diagnosis. That's the kind of theory theory, if you like. We describe a face immediately, intuitively, if you like, a sad, radiant board, and so on. Grief, he says, is personified in the face. And I think that's a very good uh, description, that we are, uh, we're directly engaged uh, with the other person's uh, emotion. Uh, and we are in a bodily way. Um, there, you can imagine many different varieties of the, of the way in which our bodies can be emotionally related to others, both in experiencing the emotion ourselves and not experiencing it. I'll skip on here. Um, and uh, in, in phenomenology, um, there are the same components that we just heard in the other speakers talking about. But I'd say a little bit about some of the peculiarities of the phenomenological one now. Uh, Self-experience and other experience. It's often, of course, dangerous to assume that we always begin with self-experience, that somehow that's transparent, and therefore we know what we do, and therefore we pro project that onto the other. Uh, Merleau-Ponty uses that phrase, that we experience ourselves as the other of the other, and I prefer that. I think that's really interesting. That means we have a, you know, we understand the other first. Shader points this out. A baby sees the mother's face before it ever sees its own face in a mirror. And so, uh, you know, reacting to a face is reacting to the other's face. Uh, <coughs> the second level of realizing what we do ourselves is more complicated. Now, uh, some of these self-other experiences, this is one that I've mentioned that is, wasn't referred to, but is equally complicated. Uh, that is relating to my own previous states in memory. All of the people in the phenomenological tradition who talked about empathy, including some of the, the psychologists like Theodore Lips, thought that empathy did somehow capture the situation where I relate to my earlier self. I just love that one. I wasn't myself yesterday. I think that's perfect for, for showing you the self-distanciation that you refer to. How you can, you can capture another state and say, that was me, but it wasn't the real me. 
it was a state I was feeling, you know, but it wasn't me. It was Arthur Guinness talking, as we say in Dublin. But, uh, um, uh, <coughs> there's a, the sense that others are present in my experiences. You know, people often talk about conscience and the voice of conscience, but that's, that sense of, if my mother could see me now, that's already happening. Uh, in our experiences, you know, and there's Freud, there's all kinds of versions of ways of describing superegos and all kinds of things looking at you, but the, we have a sense of monitoring ourselves in lots of ways, whether it's through our dead ancestors or God or, or something else. There is an experience of others, and that's really down at the very heart of our own self all the time. Um, that's... And, and self-consciousness then uh, can be seen not so much as a direct uh, self-presence, but as a kind of uh, uh, relationship with you as a kind of other that you are in dialogue with, in a kind of internal dialogue with. And I think that's very, that's sort of going against the sort of Cartesian view that we have direct immediate se uh, self-awareness. I'll just give you an example of that in Sartre. Um, he, talks, he, he talks about me not just having a body, if you like, that I experience, but I experience my body as others experience it. And, and, and the classic example he gives is shame. Shame, he thinks, is an emotion that you could only have in the presence of another, <coughs> right? That, or, or putative other, I mean, uh, uh, imagined other. Uh, in other words, um, it's not, you know, a purely egoistical mind couldn't have shame because shame is how I experience myself as, as somehow seen by the other. As Sartre says, I cannot be embarrassed by my own body as I live through it or exist it. It is my body as it may exist for the other which may embarrass me. I think that's really interesting. You know, and whether we've internalized that other or not, but the fact is that we have a kind of social face, which is the face for the other. Uh, in Sartre's example, there's a voyeur who's looking through a keyhole uh, at some scene, and the voyeur is just so completely captivated by what's going on he doesn't find. He doesn't realize somebody's come up the stairs and sees him. And when he sees himself, when he feels himself being seen and now captured, if you like, as a voyeur, it makes him confront his own self. And this is where shame comes into it. He sees himself as the other sees him. And and so that's a very complicated. This is talking the kind of complicated scenario that both of you are describing, where uh, I f imagine how others think of me, and, and I think, well, you know, she thinks. She thinks I'm angry with her because she scratched the car, but in fact I'm angry with her because she made me feel stupid. But in both cases, it's, it's the same anger, if you like, that's floating in the middle somewhere. But the reasoning for the anger matters, and, and uh, the complexity of how we weave into it, or in fact, maybe play with it and so on. <coughs> Another side, the good side, this is Sard again. I'm just giving you all this kind of touchy-feely stuff because a lot of phenomenology is regarded as a bit too touchy-feely. Uh, uh, Sard talks about the, uh, the he, largely he talks about our intersubjective relations in terms of friend-enemy, as was mentioned earlier on, that the other is rather hostile. Uh, uh, the other's look is always a hostile one. But he does talk about uh, caressing uh, the other person. And he uses this word flesh, which is taken up rather than just using the word body, because the idea of flesh is kind of living uh, incarnation of myself. But in, 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 in caressing the other, I don't just bring my flesh alive, if you like, I bring the other's flesh alive. The other person becomes sensitive to me, as it were. And, and so the, these things are incredibly 
uh, complicated, very difficult to describe. Um, and so, uh, as I say, most of the uh, phenomenological contribution is simply to to, to describe uh, many of the complexities of the kind of uh, uh, scenario that uh, the psychologists then are modeling and, and you know taking apart and describing in, in various terms of neurological description and uh, you know social relations and so on. But in phenomenology, there's a, there is a tendency for people to think phenomenology is just how it, you know how was it for me? You know that uh, famous joke about behaviorism and so on. Uh, uh, that was great for you. How was it for me? That was supposed to be the behaviorist uh, uh, really, really re reaction to things. And um, the point is that there's always this very complex, we live in a world that's saturated with emotion and an and embodied world. Uh, the phrase that's usually this embodied and embedded uh, and inactive are phrases that are floating around a lot in the cognitive science tradition, but they largely come from the phenomenological tradition, which you know thinks of us as living in a world that's mediated through a body. Like I'm now looking at you from this point of view because my eyes point in this direction. Merleau-Ponty says, "Can you imagine what our conception of objects would be like if we had eyes on either side of our heads like birds?" You know, it's just we wouldn't have the same concept of a, of a physical object. Um, so that we have to recognize that, for example, the complexity of that. Not only do I have a perspective on the room from here, but I can imagine what it's like to go um, to the other side of the room and look at it from there to here. Uh, and, you know, most of the time I'm taking all of that into account. So I can say, oh, you can't see the bottom of the screen or whatever. I'm, I'm imagining where your eyes are looking and so on. So, so that we live in this incredibly complicated world where all these things matter. I think you're, you're describing them in much more uh, uh, careful, in, in sort of modeling them in ways that we can sort of quantify. But uh, the phenomenologists are trying to remind science for a long time that this world existed. And I'm delighted that now it has, you know, largely resumed. Usually the story is, is that because cognitive science at some point um, threw out behaviorism. Because behaviorism didn't want to know anything about what was going on inside the mind at all. And I just finish if I have, do I have a few seconds or a run out of time? Oh, okay. Okay, then, then if I only have a few seconds I'll stop. But I was just going to say that uh, it, interestingly the term, i just say one thing. I, uh, 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 yeah, there's an interesting thing. Uh, sorry, I never know how to go back in these things. In right. um, Lipsu, who's the person who came up with the term Einfühlung, uh, which was then translated by Titchener, a psychologist, uh, he thinks that empathy, we apply them to objects, so that lines point upwards or the house faces west. There's, there's a good example of us transferring uh, the, 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 the orientation not just to human beings but to, uh, to plants or to physical things or whatever. Uh, and I'll just give you one more example which comes up all the time and this is a, a very interesting one. It, it depends on how you want to describe it. You can describe it in different ways but it, it shows up in the whole literature but I, I, I'm very proud of this because I think I found it uh, starting at Adam Smith and that's the people in uh, watching a tightrope walker and as they're watching the tightrope walker, the audience is sort of, you know, uh, uh, imitating the movements of the body themselves, so that they are, if you like, internalizing what's happening. And that was, if you like, the, the theme. Uh, that, they, the, uh, that this was the standard 
uh, perception of how empathy works. Now, there are very many different ways of describing it, but one of, the, one of the problems has been that we don't have a good description of what's going on there. Uh, the theory theory is one possibility. Uh, the, um, the, the mimicry one is another possibility, imitation. Lips and uh, uh, Adam Smith believed in the sort of imitation theory. But there's, there's a more complicated one that we have our own, if you like, felt uh, that, that we are embodied in a way that others' bodies belong in the same incarnate world as ours. So that, some, you know, without sort of saying that I'm just simply projecting it onto the other, I'm living in a world where you know people shake hands or rub noses or whatever, and there is this already this socialization and social integration going on. But the, the, the challenge has been to explain what's happening here. And uh, mirror neurons it, it don't explain it, they just push the problem down, because you have just the mirror, the, the mirror neurons now are meeting, writing, and, and twisting, and balancing as the human beings do. So you, don't, you, don't, you haven't explained it by saying the same relation takes place at the lower as at the higher level. So I'll stop there. Okay. Thank, Thank you. discussion to the audience relatively soon, but um, just before we do that, um, I thought it would be nice to perhaps have a little bit of a discussion amongst the panel. And one thing that I'd like to pick up on is um, that, that you just um, asked this really interesting question, what can phenomenology contribute to this debate? And you gave us um, some explanations of what phenomenology, phenomenology can indeed contribute to this. I think we have have a good sense of that. Um, now, I would like to ask in an, an analogy to that what you think, or what Chris thinks, but also what you think, what can actually neuroscience contribute to this? And um, is it the case that what we learn from the neurosciences, for instance, about mirror neurons, even though there might not be the full explanation of the phenomena we're interested in, can nevertheless enrich the debate and contribute to the debate? Or is there also perhaps a certain danger involved of naturalizing phenomenology, as it were, too much? Can, can we bring phenomenology and this naturalistic cognitive science approach together, or do you think there's like this barrier that divides the two? You're asking to me, or? Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, since Chris presented the cognitive neuroscience approach, what, what's your view on that, and then you, you might want to respond to that. I guess I come at it a very different, from a very different perspective. Yeah. Um, the, and so my, the sort of question I would ask is, and clearly there is phenomenology and we have these very nice distinctions between our experiences, and then you can say, what for? What's it good for? And I guess my ex the experiment I described to you is sort of, would be my sort of answer as to one of the things it might be good for, because by being able, by having these experiences, and by being able to talk to other people about it, we can actually come up with better models of the world. So in some sort of evolutionary sense, this is a useful ability to have. Um, but I'm not sure that's not really answering your question. I mean, the mirror neurons are very interesting because, as everybody rightly says, the mirror neurons don't explain. It's often 
presenters, if they explain how imitation happens, they don't explain it at all. As you say, they just push it down one level. But what they have done is they've had a huge impact on neuroscience and cognitive science because people have become very interested in the problem. Mm. Mm. And the, the problem is, how is it possible, like for example, imitating ex facial expression, and this is particularly true of the newborn infant, although that's highly controversial, but how is it possible that some visual information can get turned into muscle activity so that the expression you see is the one that you then generate yourself? And that's, that's really the big problem. And um, they've not really been solved. But one thing I would say, which makes life slightly difficult, is um, you talked about how when we see a facial expression, we clearly don't make any inferences. We just know it. That's what it is or something like that. And, but my worry is we don't. I mean, to put it in a very bad dualistic sort of form, we ne don't make any inferences, but our brain does. Mm -hmm. Because there must be some mechanism that does the mm -hmm. computation that allows us to have this experience. And that's why, where, uh, that's my objection to theory, theory, you know, you know, criticism of theory, theory, that we don't do these things. Of course, we don't consciously do these things, mm -hmm. but they, they may well be these things happening, which I like to think goes back to Helmholtz's concept of unconscious inferences for which he got into lots of trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think that there's, there's two things. I think that the what's it for question is a very good one, but um, I'm never, as a philosopher, I'm never clear how evolutionary explanation is supposed to work, even we don't know where we are in the chain, as it were, mm. uh, at any particular time. So it's very hard to imagine, I mean, uh, that something has an evolutionary advantage in the short term. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like a banker's bonuses. You know, <coughs> it stimulates them in the short term, but you know, it might cause, have a disastrous impact in the long term. So I can just never tell how you could uh, know at which point. This is just a general problem I have with, with evolutionary ex with, uh, explanation as it's often used. So uh, I think what. Um, what we see is that we obviously have these capacities and um, using, well, Merleau-Ponty's view is that many of them we don't know we have. We can't consciously bring them to light by reflection, as it were, uh, but we recognize them when we see them missing in, in others. You know, um, autism is usually given as an example where there's reduced levels of empathy. Now, there's, now, now, since there's such a spectrum, it's very complicated. How, I, I'm very sensitive to that. And if you go online, you'll find all kinds of uh, groups of people arguing that there isn't any such thing as autism and, and <coughs> you just think about the world differently. But um, you, you, the, the idea that you must be conscious of it uh, isn't necessarily part of phenomenological idea of experience. Uh, there are some bits that you say, oh, it must be there, like your balance. You're really not conscious of your balance until you get an inner ear infection and start losing it. But on the other hand, if you were asleep, you couldn't stay standing upright. So you are using it. And you can become conscious of it, like the tightrope walker or whatever. And, 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 and the amount of, I've had a lot of discussion with my brother about this, the amount of, of uh, training you can give to things that seem to be just at the outer reach of what we can be conscious of, but they can be brought further into consciousness. And I think that's one of the things that phenomenology, in good description, is supposed to give you that sensitivity, which might be the same kind of sensitivity that somebody would have who's uh, 
uh, an artist or, or somebody who works with colour would have about colour. So, th so that would be sort of my response and explanation. The, the, the question you asked about whether phenomenology can ever be reconciled with cognitive science, ne neuroscience, mm -hmm. as a social psychologist for me is, is particularly interesting because here I am sitting between <laughs> and, and as you, you see what I'm about to say, which is, is very difficult, uh, so I hope I'm going to, it's going to come out clear, but this is, the, for me, the essence of a social psychological contribution. Chris is looking at things. His object of analysis is the brain from an observer's point of view. And a phenomenological point of view, the object of analysis is experience. From, from a first person. I mean, but of course it includes second, third, and fourth perspectives, but it is experience. And as a social psychologist, what's my object of analysis? It is irreducibly both of those perspectives interacting. Okay? So it's, it's a change in the ontology. I would question the very assumption that these can be integrated. I would say they cannot. They are different perspectives on the social world and that a lot of the creativity and interesting things and uniqueness about humans comes precisely from the irreconcilability of these two points of view. The, the act of reflecting on ourselves, observing ourselves, reflecting on our own experience indicates that fracture which is the social production of knowledge. It takes actors and observers interacting. So if we take anything, we take even um, well, we can, we, you know, the, the neuroscientist uh, studying experience, and we take that as our object as a social psychologist. There are two points of view going on. There's the experience of the person studied and the observing scientist. Even in phenomenology, we will find those two perspectives because there's the experience and the intentionality of, you know, I'm thirsty, and the reflective understanding of it. So the actor, the experiential, and the observer are both in the experience. And those two are irreconcilable and necessarily so. Right. So Otherwise you would say there's something um, inherently problematic, but also important about our ability as subjects to take ourselves as objects. We are actors and observers simultaneously, and they are irreconcilable. And would you say that our very ability for intersubjectivity, or however you want, might want to call it, empathy, social interaction, and so on, actually plays a role in that? Yeah. In that enables us to take this perspective in the first place. Because um, I think you hinted at something like that in your presentation, but also Demo said that an understanding of the other actually is prior to the mm. ability to reflect on ourselves. Um, so that would suggest that if we didn't have this ability to interact with others, to understand others, we wouldn't be able to take this objective perspective in the first place. Yeah, I, I think so. But, but before that, uh, before the integration of first-person and third-person perspectives within ourselves or actor and observer perspectives within ourselves. If we're just purely actors, there's only other people. I'm the centre of the world. There's no me. Um, we become objects to ourselves through these intersubjective dynamics. And in that becoming other to ourselves, those two perspectives, which are irreconcilable, are bound together in a, in a creative disunity somehow, enabling self-reflection. But I don't think you'll ever, or we, we could ask the question, you know, would a neuropsychological account ever be sufficient for a phenomenologist to go, ah, that's what I'm trying to explain? I don't think it would. And equally, you could go the other way around, and I don't think a phenomenologist would ever explain. But I guess one of the things I'm particularly interested in is trying to understand how we can reflect upon 
things, ourselves or others or mental states or whatever it may be. And I believe that there's some sort of brain mechanism that enables us to do this. But I presume that's entirely compatible with what you're saying, because it doesn't say anything about what we'll, what you do with it when you've got the ability. Can I have a little question? Yeah. Do you think the mirror system has anything to do with that capacity no. for reflection? No. Yeah. And are you saying that as a, as a just that they're different areas of the brain? Or are you saying that in terms of the, the development? I'm, well, I would never dare to say, I would think it would be quite wrong to conclude it from being different areas of the brain, because okay. that doesn't mean anything. I think it would be much more at a sort of cognitive level. And also that this mirroring happens Without unconsciously, yeah. and it happens yeah. in monkeys, and yeah. so on and yeah. so on. Yeah. And there's, I mean, people have become very interested in reflection, and they've coined the term metacognition, and there are actually sort of statistical ways of measuring how good people are at metacognition, which is how good you are at knowing whether you're right or not in our sort of simple tasks that we do. And this is, and there is some evidence that different brain systems are involved. But I think the mirror system is a much more primitive system. Well, and I would call it, I quite agree with you, that the sort of thing we're talking about is contagion. Mm. Not, em not empathy. In the so it's a kind of muscle mimicry. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. On this sort of um, differentiation between contagion, empathy, and other levels, I think um, uh, you hinted in, I think, more than one presentation to the fact that we, we're sort of stretching here very much our discussion from the very basic levels of emotional contagion, empathy, um, automatic imitation and so on, up to, you know, culture, Shakespeare, other things were mentioned. We haven't really said a lot yet about how those might hang together. So we've talked about embodiment, we've talked about mirror neurons, um, but it's not really clear yet how these different levels connect. Um, and of course, it, it would be asked too much to have a, to have a the worked out theory about that, but I, I was wondering if you, if you might have some thoughts um, about that. I mean, you mentioned that there's this dispute between simulation theory and theory theory, but of course there's also things like um, narrative practice theory or something which try to, I think, connect these level levels a little bit in it. They pick up on this direct perception of emotions and then spin that into a narrative which connects us with our cultural community. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously Chris has taken the term hermeneutics, and um, uh, which is originally came out of biblical uh, interpretation and trying to recover the original experiences that underlay, for example, um, uh, sacred texts <coughs> that were long gone and written in an ancient language and so on. And uh, there's always this problem of trying to recover a lost experience or to describe an experience that is covered up by being in a different language and so on. So. None of us really got much into the discussion about um, language. And as we are language-using and symbolic-using beings, all our experiences are far more complicated than you know, would be the case if we weren't language-using beings. And so we have to factor that into account and uh, recognize that complexity, that the kind of, so metacognition is enabled by us being able to quote, for example, you know, yeah. or to describe my own thoughts. I, I heard a whole very interesting thing about grammar. They're talking about the word like as it was used by people. Like, you know, I walked into the room and I'm like, what 
what's going on here. Like, I, I, I'm li like there means I'm now going to quote an earlier mental state I was in. Right? So, so it's really interesting that we have that facility. That's only a very small case. But there are incredibly complicated cases where we can articulate all the different levels of our understanding of ourselves uh, in, in relation to others. That, I think, in relation to the question, Christine, as to how we integrate these different levels, you see, I think the phenomenological view is that we have to start where we are, which is in the, the, we live with all these levels. I mean, we are beings who go to the theatre or watch TV and, you know, uh, are involved in literature and tell narratives and so on. So we are doing all these things. Um, whether whether um, what we have to be careful of is that the language of, let's say, representing that we do in their everyday life, if, if it gets transferred down to what neurons are doing, we have to be careful. Right? And, and I think that's one of the problems is that people unconsciously uh, shift uh, the language of the upper level to the lower level. So we have to have kind of barriers for doing that and, and, and there have to be rules about it because you know, it is every, nearly everyone does say, "Well, your brain sees what's going on, and it maps, what, you know, this and, and Make so." Differences. Yeah, <laughs> it does all the things that we do. So you know, uh, 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 I once wrote a paper on that, which I called "All the Lights Are On But Nobody's Home," uh, which kind of described what the most neurologists think that the brain is like. And there isn't any me doing any of this stuff. It's just all being done, you know. But. Uh, that I would worry about that. So in the, I think in moving from what, even say the narrative, moving from one, if you take something from one level of description and apply it to the other, you have to have all kinds of exclusions and, and right. constraints. I would imagine that would apply then to your well. So what, what I spoke about there is one possible way we integrate is movement, physical movement in the world, which I think hasn't been recognized enough. But it, it actually, I would agree completely with what Dermot says, and if we get into the subtleties of intersubjectivity, language becomes essential. And um, the addressivity, orientation, perspective taking, which occurs in language is so subtle when you analyze it in detail. Uh, Bakhtin at one point says, you know, uh, people spend a, a quarter of their time quoting other people. And I read this and didn't believe it until I started transcribing group discussions. And people are always quoting other people telling stories. And what happens in a story when we're at the narrative level, to follow a story, you have to move at a narrative level. You move between the characters. You, you know, if, if you're watching a film about cops and robbers, on one side you're the cop and on the other side you're the robber. So everything I said about movement, I would actually say occurs just at a more subtle level in narrative. Language actually allows that to take off. And when we're, we're using language, we're separating ourselves from the immediate stimulus environment and moving, moving from one theory to the next and moving from one story we tell to the next and so on. Yeah, I'm, perhaps I should go back to the neural hermeneutics because, which I think relates very closely to this. So the way I understood it was that indeed people were trying to translate or understand these ancient religious texts in different languages. And this in a sense was very difficult because how did you know when you had the right translation? But in fact, exactly the same happens when I'm talking to you because how do I know that my interpretation of what you just said is right? And in my sort of naive way of looking at it, because I can't get inside your head and look at it. So there has to be some mechanism which enables us to solve this problem. And my sort of sketch of it is, is more or less what I was saying, and that relates to what you were saying, is that I don't just have a representation of what I think you mean, but I have a representation of what you think I think you mean. 
and that way I can get inside my own head what I think you mean and what I think you think I mean. And if they're discrepant, then there's something wrong, and we have to go on having the conversation. So this, it's, as you say, it's precisely this business of moving between the self and the other and somehow being able to deal with this all simultaneously that is the way in which you can, we can resolve this problem of how to get inside other people's heads. Okay, I think we should open up the discussion. Um, yeah. um, that so far, and that, that addresses some of the concerns I had, um, but it still doesn't uh, kind of really uh, get to grips with the fact that, um, I mean, written language, for example, because, you know, you flagged up uh, culture at the end of your um, uh, presentation, Chris, um, tantalisingly, and now um, you're, 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 you're building into this world of kind of self-interest, um, the issue of language, um, which clearly isn't transparent or opaque even, and doesn't require the, the kind of implicit self-presence that, that, that everybody's based their presentations on. Um, and, and so, you know, the issue of language doesn't really seem to have been addressed, and, and, and equally art as well, insofar as um, Dermot's phenomenological reading mentions imaginative representation in a context of shader and empathy and so on, but doesn't, um, for example, you know, how, how wide would that be? Um, would it, for example, um, address issues like um, looking at people and pondering the effects of time on their uh, visible um, you know, features, um, which is something, and I'm just really quickly wanted to insert, the kind of thing where uh, children, you know, a parent will say, stop staring at that man in the bus, you know, or something like that, because the child's like, you know, fixedly staring at the person and, and drinking in how they look, and and I don't know. I, I discovered recently that not everybody plays the sort of mental game of looking at, particularly a familial pair. People do this with dogs and owners, but not so much with uh, related um, uh, individuals. We're getting into many different well, questions. No, the, the no. point <laughs> is the, the point is: would imaginative representation include the issue of um, deliberately aging people or making them younger? Um, and, and kind of get second guessing how how they would appear in that way. Really, just for the for the, I mean, is that a, a, an artifact of culture, in in the sense in which you know you're talking? I, just in terms of what I was saying, I think what I wanted to point out was that, um, in, and this is one of the points made very commonly by phenomenologists that imagination plays a role in all perception even, you know, so even basic perception, uh, there's a certain amount of imaginative um, filling in th that goes on, and certainly uh, it goes on in, in, or it can go on in when we're trying to figure out um, what is happening with other people, but we want to distinguish imaginative transference of ourselves into the other from experiencing other people as themselves. I mean, of course, I mean, what you were saying, of course you could look at a face and imagine what it would be like 20 years or whatever. And, um, but the, one of the points phenomenology makes is that there's a danger in empathy of just transposing yourself into the other person. If you just did that, you'd only ever encounter yourself, if you like. 
and, and, and one of the problems is is to how you encounter the other person's genuinely other and different uh, states, perhaps ones you could never even have imagined yourself having, but now see uh, embodied before you. So the, 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 what I wanted to do is distinguish the act of imagining from the act of empathy in the genuine sense. Yeah, to, to present on, on this in 10 minutes, you miss a lot. <laughs> and imagination is um, central, absolutely central. We could, we could all have a discussion here on the Amazon, on life in Star Trek. On, you know, I've interviewed people on places they've never been before. I did a three-hour interview with some people on you know, a place they've never been to. And they said, oh, I've never been there. I can't talk about it. Three hours later, they were still talking about Tibet. Yeah? Um, we, we, imagination, we're saturated in it, but it's, it's central to these issues, but it is, it is very complex. It's durational I think we have to... Um, do you want to say something to that question? Or? Well, I, I would think that imagination is definitely involves metacognition. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so lots of other questions here. Um, yeah, and the right... Um, I was just going to ask, sorry, um, Alex, you, you implied that um, you don't really have any natural sense of being a leader or a follower, but yet we still talk about people being natural leaders. Do you think that's something that's not an innate quality and definitely something you gain from experience and uh, There's a whole social psychology on, on whether followers make leaders or leaders make followers. Um, with a lot of this, if you ask a social psychologist, they say it's not innate because it takes other people to do it, you see. Uh, so there is a sense in which whatever you talk about, even aggression, there is no one person alone being aggressive. It's an attribution made by an observer. Um, and in that sense, leadership is constituted by followers. Okay. Um, yeah, on the front. Um, my question was with regards to the work of uh, Dr. Chris Frith. I was wondering if uh, um, the alliance of all such things as uh, mirroring and possibly our alliance and others was due to uh, certain evolutionary flaws in the sensory organs such as the eyes which led us to uh, become dependent on the actions of others to maybe survive in both social situations and uh, animal situations. I, I may have gone off on a tangent there. I think... Well, there's one, I mean, uh, I'll answer a different question. There's one very interesting feature of the human eye because the, so optically speaking, it's pretty much not different from that of other primates, like monkeys or chimpanzees or whatever. The major difference is that we have a white outline. And this, as far as I can understand, the sole function of this is so that I can see where you're looking. <laughs> So it's actually a signal about where you're looking. It's very difficult to see where a chimpanzee is looking because they have a brown surround to their eye. So that's one example of apparently something evolving for a group purpose, if, if you believe in that way of talking about things. The, and I guess, I, I, so I wouldn't say there's something necessarily wrong with our, particularly bad about our eyesight, but I would say that our ability to share our experiences enables us to transcend the possibilities given by our own senses because we, I mean, apart from it, we can not only as I said with these simple experiments two people can do better than one in seeing a signal, but you can also invent telescopes or whatever Thank you. Okay, um, yeah, there in the lecture um, yeah, Sorry, just to correct you first of all, Professor Fifth, a monkey isn't a primate but um, It I is 
Well, isn't it the apes, gorillas, chimpanzees, and gibbons that are the no, they're primates? No, don't get into this. The primates go down to lemurs. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Something you learn every day. <laughs> 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 I was far more interested, though, in what you were saying about... Um, other people's reactions and I wondered if there was a parity and an equality in terms of how people imitate each other whether they're sort of two friends or two enemies I know sometimes you can be friend and an enemy but I, I was really interested in that and also in terms of what um, Mr Dr Gillespie said um, in terms of th there seems to be politically a bit of a contradiction in what you were saying because on the one hand you seem to say that um, everybody, it, it, you implied, or it sounded like as if you're implying that everybody has the same tools to be able to do these things, that everybody comes from the same starting point. Yet, I, uh, on the other hand, and I speak <coughs> as a social democrat, the way you said about hierarchy and positioning seems to endorse sort of the one nation conservative idea that there's this kind of organic hierarchy and we're all positioned. So I just wondered if you can comment on that phenomenon. Well, the first question is the easy one. Um, <laughs> there's, there's increasing evidence, which is not surprising, but slightly nasty, that this mirroring of action, for example, and even for, of pain, is only for people in your in-group. So, for example, an experiment was done in China, where you saw Chinese subjects and Caucasian subjects and they test scanned Chinese subjects and Caucasian subjects and they saw needles being stuck into their faces and you only get the empathic response in terms of brain activity when the Caucasian is seeing a Caucasian or the Chinese is seeing a Chinese. And there's other evidence along these lines. So there's, it's, it's, it is, as you say, it's more like friends and enemies but it's actually different whether you're on the same race or not and it will probably be found to be the case for minimal groups, as they call them, but I don't know that that's been done yet. For the hierarchies, I think that's your question. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah just to agree with that, there, there's a lot of interesting intergroup dynamics, the way in which groups represent each other, which I think blocks perspective taking, and there's a whole topic there on how you can have contact without contact and so on, very interesting questions. But regarding the hierarchies, I, I didn't mean to say humans weren't biologically different, there is a lot of vari variance in, in humanity, um, but the uh, different positions that are accorded in society, you know, there's no gene for being a hairdresser and there's no gene for being president and so on. We create in our society a multitude of positions which don't map onto any biological basis. And I was just saying that when you're in those social situations, the situations constitute you largely. And the, the research I would refer to is thousands of studies in social psychology. You might know Milgram studies of, you know, you know people say, oh, I'd never give an electric shock to anyone. You put them in a certain situation and they will. Uh, we would all kill someone under the right circumstances. Uh, the, our behavior is under situational control. In extreme situations, we'll do anything. But we might have different thresholds. We might have different thresholds. As I say, there is variance. There's a lot of variance in that. But. Okay. Uh, yeah, you. Um, you, yeah. Thank you. No, sorry, no, the woman behind you. I'm sure I can see your faces and you can see my face if I sit down. I, I scanned the titles and I saw the fabric of our social world, and that's why I am here. I can't speak your academic language. I was a teacher for more than 40 years and um, in two different countries. And uh, this is my worry, the, so the fabric of our society. Um, um, I was a science teacher and 
Um, if you ask some, most of the science teachers, they will say a lot of the students were not interested in science, but natural science, but they come very much alive when social aspects are discussed. And I don't know why we have in most countries, so natural sciences are compulsory, but social sciences are not. But the children are dying, even 11, 12 year olds are dying to learn psychology, sociology, philosophy, and why so we have amassed mountains of knowledge in psychology, philosophy, in so many, all areas of social sciences. Why aren't we teaching them in the secondary school? And why is our society like this? I am from Sri Lanka. I have, I mean, I mean that is one of several conflict areas of conflicts. Man is inhuman to man. And why aren't we making use of these mountains, Everest of knowledge in the schools? They are, they are, they want to, they want to learn about these things. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you why they don't do social psychology because um, a recent report showed that the only job for social psychologists is teaching social psychology <laughs> uh, and, but this reveals a great truth that uh, yes most students are interested in, in social psychology and social issues but our progress on them is very meagre we, uh, when it comes to a real conflict and you bring in a social psychologist and you try and get them to do something useful <laughs> but it's actually an interesting question. I mean, what do you think can actually a discussion such as this, um, you know, contribute be maybe to better understanding of ourselves and our, our society, if it can? Presumably, we're, we're sort of doing this this for a reason. And um, do you think that this, you know, the very fact of <coughs> reflecting on this in turn, because we talked about these different levels, right? So I can think about not only what you think, but also what you think I think and, and so on. And so maybe in that sense, there is a level of reflecting on these uh, issues. If I can just say something on that, that um, <coughs> I think one of the things that phenomenology set, it up, set, set itself <coughs> up to do was to try to win back uh, some room for the human sciences um, in the increasingly technologized culture, you know, and, and they had a critique of, of how culture has become so technologically controlled and, and manipulated and produced. I mean, this is a, it produced a large discussion, especially from the 1930s onwards in, in Germany uh, and elsewhere. But the, um, the problem is that um, a bit like what you were saying, that it's so difficult uh, to show the value of culture, if you like, on its own, as it were. People always think uh, now the talk, talk is about innovation. So uh, everyone, uh, you can't just do science, but it's be science with innovation. And then, but you think, well, that's what we used to do in literature and all kinds of other creative things. But <coughs> no, no, it has to be specific now to technological innovation or economic innovation. So the, the terminology is shifting, but uh, the, my own view is that what you would, what school, you don't really need psychology or philosophy in the school. The people are doing literature and discussing books and, you know, uh, reading things and, and having their own views on it. That should be enough to develop this sense of uh, understanding others, as you say, living in another country and so on, learning another language. These are all ways of gaining this multiple perspective. Somebody gave me a very good example, actually, of the triple sort of uh, tracking that we do, not just in understanding others, but a simultaneous translator. 
who is listening to one language and speaking another, and in between monitoring what they're doing to make sure they're getting it right. And that person is doing it all at once. I think that's an incredibly good example of, of the sort of three different selves in the one. Mm. Okay, I think we just one quick, quick. Uh, to make the best use of the natural, the advances in natural sciences, we need to have a knowledge of, people must need a knowledge of social sciences. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so I think we have time for one last question. Um, maybe there in the middle? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering, in terms of understanding of social cognition research, there's um, a very heavy emphasis historically on just understanding uh, intuitive knowledge about what a person might be thinking or feeling. I'm wondering what each of your um, disciplines might have to say about the other as somebody who I, matters to me, about whom I can and not only understand but empathize with and feel intimate with and, and love who matters to me as another mind beyond simply what I understand of that mind's contents. Um, I can just say something very briefly on that in that uh, certainly in the <coughs> say Heidegger, the phenomenological tradition thought that one of the problems was that we took a model of cognition that started as a kind of looking at the world rather than being engaged in a kind of concern or care, connect, caring connection with others. So if you have this caring connection, you have a different uh, kind of epistemology, a different model of how knowledge relates to the world. And uh, uh, that's very important in phenomenology. I mean, one basic idea is that not only do we are always in a, in a, in a, in a social world, but we're always in, in, embedded in some mood. It's not just to say we're embedded in a body, but we live within a mood. You know, this mood gives us a whole colouring of the world and a, and a way of relating to others. Yeah, um, William James, who wrote a very famous chapter on the self, so the self begins with your material self, and that's what most of us would agree with. You know, somewhere behind the eyes and the body, maybe, we feel embarrassed and shame and all the emotions which go with the self. But he said the self doesn't end there. It extends into your possessions. You know, you lose your... Someone breaks into your house and steals everything. You, you feel a loss of yourself. And it doesn't end there. Because everyone who knows you has an image of you in their head. And if we say, where are you? It's not just you in a physical being. It's you in all those images and all those heads of all those people you know. And around that close circle of people you know, the self in an emotional sense extends. And so we know that if, if you're with your partner and they do something silly, you blush. The, the emotions and, and the, 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 that's just a, it's, it's, I, I would describe that those close relations as the self is actually expanded into other people in a way which we haven't got into discussing but some interesting stuff happens there yeah I would comment that certainly so far as social neuroscience is concerned the, and it, it relates to psychology generally the emphasis has always been on this idea that you look at the world and the experiments would typically be having people, how do they respond given certain social situations? But I much prefer, which I, in a sense is what you were getting at, is the engineering approach, which says it's, whereas psychologists say you have an input, which is usually visual stimuli coming in, and then you have an output, which is you doing something. The engineers say the input is what you do to the world, and the output is what comes back. And this is a much better way, I think, of thinking about how we interact with people. And, of course, the really interesting thing is not having one person being presented with social situations, it's to have at least two people interacting. And maybe you should analyse them as a unit. 
and you would get more out of it from analysing as a unit as you would from analysing them both separately and then trying to add mm -hmm. it together. And is neuroscience, cognitive science moving towards that in, to some extent, do you think? I'm trying to move <laughs> it. I take as a, a methodological maxim any re empirical research I do, I look at both sides, what each person thinks of themselves, what each person thinks of the other, and what each person thinks the other person thinks of them. So you've got six selves in a relationship with two people. A lot of data. <laughs> a lot of data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, as always, I think we could go on forever, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. So let's thank our speakers and thank you. Again.